Welcome back to Riot Underground. You found the place where instigators are changing the world with disruptive technology. I'm Sarah Glova. And in this episode, we're joined by Paul Peterson, Senior Field Applications Engineer for Aero Electronics. I can't wait for you to hear from him. He's got a rich background in the semiconductor industry, and he brings that and more to our discussion today. It's one episode going all the way back to the early days of Intel and Xerox, and then all the way forward to the innovations that Paul is seeing today, every day. We'll start with our favorite first question to help you, the listeners, get a picture of who we've got in Riot Studios today. So Paul, who would you pick if you could pick any celebrity to play you in a movie about you? Uh, Robin Williams. I know that. (laughs) I like that answer. So I've seen you present a few times and you're always an engaging speaker and something else I think our listeners are really going to enjoy is that you've just got a ton of experience in this industry. A little bit. Yeah, it's interesting because... I've been with Aero for 27 years, and when you take a look back at how technology has transformed or has changed from that period from around 1970 to, let's say, the year 2000, somewhere in that space, for about 30 years, it's amazing the advances that we've seen with technology. I mean, that's a relatively uh, short time frame. Like in the grand scheme of things, 30 years went by really quick, but what we're working on is so different. Exactly. And, and, and what's interesting about it is one of the founders of Intel was a gentleman by the name of Gordon Moore. And he proposed a theory by around 1975, 76, somewhere in that time frame that said the number of transistors that we'll be able to put into a computer chip will double about every 18 months to two years. And that's how true. It's amazing. He made that comment in 30 years, nearly 40 years later, where still we see that in effect. It's amazing that that's what's enabled all of this um, technology to to change fundamental things in our lives and Mm -hmm. and things of that sort. I love that example because, well, I've heard those in the tech world talk about that example before. And there's just always this, almost like this awe of his ability to see that, almost like he was seeing into the future. And what's interesting about you sharing that, though, is you have a connection to Intel as well, right? Correct. So when you left NC State, mm-hmm. you decided um, you were looking at, you know, should I go into graduate school? Should Correct. I go into career? And you had this offer from a pretty small, at that time, not well-known company called Intel. Intel. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, back in those days, uh, not many people were familiar with you know, the computer chip or the semiconductor industry, it was a relatively new. It didn't really impact, you know, the, the areas of our lives and things like that. We knew it was something special. We knew that there was something amazing that was going on. And, you know, we couldn't quite predict all the changes that it was going to foresee, but it, it didn't fundamentally change that. All of the things that we do with IoT or things like that are built upon fundamental building blocks that are enabled by the electronics and semiconductor industry. So when we talk Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or cellular or things like that, what enables that are really the integrated circuits that um, that Aero can supply and deliver. Mm-hmm. And so I can yeah. see some of that excitement there, just feeling like you're such a big part of that. So you mentioned when you started at Intel, there was there was kind of that buzz, that feeling mm-hmm. of, you know, we're not sure where this is going, but we know that this right. is something exciting. And then you said that you feel that now in your work. Has that been consistent through your career? Or do you feel like at this point, we're kind of on the edge of something that's a little bit similar to maybe when you started your career? I'm a very, very fortunate person that I get to wake up 
every morning and I get to go, I get to do this again. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's, it's cool. I enjoy that. That's great. Yeah. It's nice to, to talk with people who aren't, you know, on Sunday nights, aren't dreading Monday. And oh. certainly that's like, that's the kind of excitement that you can feel even through a podcast format. I think people can hear that smile. So you are talking about your industry a little bit, your Mm -hmm. career. Something you mentioned is that IoT has only been around as a term for really the last 10 years. Something I've learned from working Mm -hmm. uh, with professionals like you who have been in the industry since we were talking about kind of in this last 30 years, seeing this evolution, IoT is the current term for it. We were talking about this before IoT, weren't we? Well, in a way, we were. It, it, it's actually interesting. Um, and, and, yeah, there's a lot of variations of the term. We have the Internet of everything and the Internet of something. I, it, it's, connected it's devices, connected machine devices. to machine. Yeah, and it's interesting because, um, not to get you know too deep on the technical side, but a lot of people don't realize that, you know, something that's emerged out of even the 50s or the 60s. There was an initiative to try to get, you know, back in those days, these large mainframes Ability to share data. You know, large industries would spend millions of dollars and put these mainframes in and things like that. And there was a little company, and a lot of people don't realize how innovative they were. They weren't actually little, they were actually fairly large. A lot of their technology they invented, and we use it on a daily basis, and we didn't really think about it. For example, they invented Ethernet. What is the fundamental protocol we use in? The internet. Mm-hmm. And that company is called Xerox. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that Xerox, you know, we think of them as copiers. And yes, that's why they invented it, was made copiers more efficient and things of that sort. But Xerox was kind of ahead of their times. And a lot of the technology we, you know, we talk about the internet and how it sends, physically send data was was developed by them. They also invented things like the graphical user interface. Right. I think, so yeah. uh, one of my favorite books is Walter Isaacson's mm-hmm. Innovators. And I think uh, there's a lot in that dedicated to what they did for R&D and how they yeah. had dedicated space for that and investments in that. And so a lot of the things that we use today and take for granted are fundamental back to the Xerox days. That's right. And we look back at, you know, the companies that emerged to support this technology Semiconductors, to me, are kind of fascinating. I, I do occasionally a talk, and I, um, uh, it's one of these real just fun things that I do, and I call it the greatest invention of the 20th century. It, it actually is interesting. It, there are a lot of people that will say the silicon transistor, mm-hmm. the good old transistor. And a lot of people, our, our grandparents or our great parents, remember the old tube radios and things like that. And, you know, yes, we use these transistors for that. And through the 1940s and 1950s, it kind of change electronics to to a degree. But what's interesting about it um, is the second greatest invention in a very similar theme was the ability to put two of those transistors on a single substrate, a single piece of material. That was the beginning of the first integrated circuits. Mm. Now, why is that so important? Why, why, Why does that really you know, okay, great. They figured out a transistor that we, we take them for granted and putting two in there. The, the, the two gentlemen that invented that, actually, there was two gentlemen working independently that came up with that. It was um, Jack Kilby and Bob Noyce were the co-inventors of the multi-transistor device. But what that allowed us to do was to figure out how to put more and more and more transistors in a solid-state device, and it kind of sounds geeky, but what what that did was the whole information age emerged out of that. 
as we go through the 1960s and 1970s, we just see this acceleration based off of what we said earlier, Moore's Law, that ability to keep doubling and doubling mm-hmm. and doubling every two years. And that's why our computers got to be so much smarter. And it's the fundamental reason that today we can ask Alexa, what's the temperature in Barrow, Alaska? And mm-hmm. she'll respond. None of that would have been enabled without this technology. We would have made advances, mm-hmm. but we would have not had smartphones, laptops, PCs, virtually anything mm-hmm. that uh, that was technology. I love those points in tech history where you can see one invention kind of be the parent for all right. that, right? Like, um, it's almost like there's a fork in history, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, we went this way because of the, this one point. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neat. Okay. So another piece I wanted to talk to you about, um, something you've said a couple times is uh, you've referred to some of this technology as, as fundamental. Like mm-hmm. you'll mention something that seems complicated, but then you'll point to how it's fundamental or it's basic. So having yeah. had the pleasure of seeing you speak before, I've seen Excellent. you do some exercises that kind of go back to the the basics of IoT, really trying to break down what I think is often this kind of confusing umbrella where we just throw everything, right? We throw the cloud in there, we throw data in there, we throw hardware, software. Sometimes we throw in real fun buzzwords like blockchain or AI, but I've seen you break it down to its core and that's been really powerful. So can you walk us through, why, why do you do that? What's, what's passion there for you for the basics of IoT? Well, I think at the core of everything, like a lot of people, how things work you know, are, are kind of um, one of the things that gets me excited. But I also think we run the risk if we don't understand how technology has been enabled or developed. We run the risk of not being able to fully understand its limitations, its strengths, and things of that sort. I see this emerging in a lot of people that are, kind of grew up in the information age. They'll take for granted, for example, Wi-Fi or it's just there. It just works. We call those um, plumbing technologies. Yeah. Because it's almost like you expect it to work, you need it to work, you rely on it, but you don't think about it. Right. You only think about it if it's not working. Yeah, and that's, that's a great way to put it. And what I'm seeing is kind of an emergence of people that kind of take advantage of the latest and greatest technologies and fail to realize kind of from where it came the history, I don't know, I don't think I'm that much of a history buff. Maybe I am, but I, I think that the understanding of we were here, we innovated to this level, and we innovated to this level. Mm-hmm. But there was some core goodness that was in this level that we can't, we we shouldn't forget about. The problem, if there is one you know, with our Moore's Law thing, is that devices can be so extraordinarily complicated that... It takes a lot of effort to understand, you know, the, the basic pieces of that. I, I go back to your auto mechanic, which, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting, is that, you know, many of our, like, for example, you know, my parents or my grandparents, they had no problem lifting the hood and working on the car. Right, and figuring it out, looking at the manual. Right. And cars are one of those instruments that have just adopted mass technology in a lot There's of ways. There's more lines of code in cars today than there are in fighter jets. Yeah, that's exactly true. And what's interesting is, and all that technology is great and wonderful. We have auto braking. We have lane Lane detection, detection. self-driving cars. And, you know, and you look at that and the technology has really made the car in some ways 
inaccessible from an understanding. We know it works, and it works well. But most people can't crack that hood anymore. So I have an observation about this. I think that there's a difference between individuals who grew up in a time where computers were open, right? Mm -hmm. The time of the home computer club, the Steve Wozniaks, the build it yourself and pull the components in as you want it. After that point, computers were closed and are closed, and they were beautifully encased as they are today, and we just stopped opening them up in the same way. But what's been really interesting to me is companies like yours and IoT. So that right, that kind of happened, and those computer clubs maybe went away. They're, they were still there, but maybe not as prominent. It really changed. And then now with IoT, with connected devices, we have this new wave. I mean, I've seen it from Arrow. You have these development kits. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got Raspberry Pis. We've got open source. It seems like the maker movement is back. And even though we've got smarter devices, we also have some sandbox areas now too. Yeah. And it's interesting because you're right. Back in the early 70s and things like that, back in the day of the Steve Wozniaks and Mm -hmm. things like that, it really was. It was uh, computers, particularly this whole personal computer was kind of almost like a maker We're going to go do something fun and everything else like that. That same kind of concept is around today. um, But what we've done in many ways is we've abstracted that fundamental electronic component side of it into larger building blocks. Mm -hmm. And, And that's great because it makes technology, it gets over that hurdle to get individuals kind of to embrace a technology and quickly and rapidly develop around it. Aero Electronics is a global distributor, the largest global distributor mm-hmm. of electronic components. But I know that you work a lot with startups. So why, why does a company so big work with these organizations that oftentimes are so small? I think we recognize that the big companies won't stay big all, all the time. Technology forces paradigm shifts in the industry and what may be a really innovative, you know, idea it may often come from somebody, uh, you know, a guy, a, couple, a gal or whatever working in their garage that said, I have an idea for something that's going to be better. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of a cool thing. Um, so that's why we, we see that, you know, we know that they have a lot of uh, risk, a lot of odds against them from ultimately succeeding. But hopefully in our efforts, we can remove some of those barriers. And then when they succeed and they need to make product, we can be there to supply the components for them. And you've been right there. I mean, Air Electronics has been a little bit, um, you've been a little bit like Santa Claus when you come to visit Red Labs. (laughs) You bring these dev kits and other things from Aero that our startups in Riot Labs get to play with and and experiment with. And I, I recognize that it's those kind of partners with Riot that give our startups a chance to not only, I mean, the components are important. It's important to have those Lego pieces to play with as they're prototyping. But what's even more important is you're you're coming into Riot Labs. We see other reps from from Arrow, other engineers from Arrow coming into Riot Labs and talking with our startups, talking about what they're seeing. And when those collaborations happen, I think that's when we see a lot of success. Yeah, exactly. It's great. We love to ask people who are in this industry because you've got so much insider perspective, you kind of see boots on the ground. So this is an answer from you, not from Arrow. But if you had unlimited funding, given kind of what's going on in tech today, where would you invest it? Oh, wow. Uh, if I had unlimited money and I was going to start my venture 
company and things like that. I would like to see some of the, you know, some of the money in terms of the technology around some of the medical type um, things that I'm seeing that are coming out that are really innovative. There are some things that we, we get to see that that I think the data analytics piece of this in terms of healthcare and things of that sort are compelling to me, that, that, are, that are interesting to me. Also, certain things like in the agricultural space, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I, to me is just fascinating is how technology, not only electronic technology, but even things like genetics and things like that, in really one or two generations has solved some fundamental things. We know that nutrition is still a problem in, in parts of the world, but mm-hmm. it's one of those things that we don't talk about, you know, widespread famines and things of that sort. So some of the ideas that we've got in terms of um, native food production, even in places that aren't prone to growing products, is, I think, has changed the world in ways that we maybe can't even appreciate at this point, where people are no longer going hungry. Children are getting proper nutrition. They're getting education and things of that sort. You know, And I'm not saying that because I work for the company, but I, I look at things like Arrow, and there's a division of Arrow that reclaims like old computers and things of that sort. And, and you know, so much of this e-waste still has value in places. It may not be the latest laptop that I'm going to you know, used to watch videos on or things of that sort. But those can be repurposed. And Arrow has some initiatives, for example, where those products are, we take containers that you see, you know, normal shipping containers, turn them into classrooms that can be transported anywhere in the world with internet connectivity, laptops that are very usable and serviceable. And we can drop those in areas and create for relatively little funding a generation that will grow up accessing all of the world's information. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That and and cool. it's, you know, it's, and I'm proud to be associated with a, with, with a company that, that kind of has that forethought to say, let's, how can we take something that is maybe trash to, you know, one, one country and things like that. So. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's hard to end on a better note than that. That's great. Good. We can, we can theme to that. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us in Riot Underground. It's been fascinating. I feel like, You did such a great job of couching some really innovative, exciting things that are coming up in kind of the history of this tech movement that we're in, especially within the last 30 years of your career, but kind of even bigger than that, going all the way back to some of the technology in the 20th century that's making the disruptive tech that we see today possible. So thank you for taking on on that journey with us. Happy to do it. Thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning in and make sure you're subscribed because we've got more great episodes coming your way. See you in the next episode of Riot Underground. Hey, y'all. Caroline Griffin here, dropping in to say thanks for listening. And if you have any questions for Riot, send me a note. You can reach me at caroline at ncriot.org. This Riot Underground podcast is created and produced by Riot Studios with music by Scott Jackson. Riot is a nonprofit focused on economic development through the Internet of Things or IoT. We produce events, conferences, and educational courses around the world. And we run an early stage startup accelerator out of Riot Labs in Raleigh, North Carolina. Our nonprofit also operates a wireless test and certification facility under the Wireless Research Center brand. Learn how to engage by visiting us at ncriot.org.